Today on the To Win the Mini podcast, we have Dr. Adam Dooley. Dr. Dooley, thanks for joining us. Dr. Dooley is the senior pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, also, he was my predecessor at Dolphin Way Baptist Church, and we've been talking about old times at Dolphin Way. Yeah. Uh, and man, I'm glad to have you on. It's good to talk to you. Adam, you've written on preaching, Passion in the Pulpit uh, with Dr. Jerry Vines. That was your doctoral work. So just talk to us about how you approach that subject. Why that subject, actually? Uh, what is it about the pathos in preaching that interested you, that intrigued you, and that wanted you? Because, you know, you write that dissertation, brother. You go down the research rabbit hole. That's so right. what was it about that topic? Uh, and then what did you find in the rabbit hole that made you come back out and then write a book to yeah. help preachers with that topic? Yeah, well, as you know, when you're in the PhD program, you have to take a lot of seminars. And uh, early on, I got the advice that every seminar paper could potentially become a chapter yeah. in a dissertation. And you were at Southern. I, uh, I had to mention that. You I know, was we'll at get the, that out of the, the way. Southern Baptist <laughs> Theological Seminary. That's right. And uh, so Herschel York was my supervisor, and I wrote this paper about manipulation in preaching. Mm. And I was trying to develop a criteria to determine what crossed the line into uh, emotional appeal, but moved into manipulation. And in doing that, I just stumbled upon this idea that every biblical text has a, a pathos or an emotive structure. And Herschel said to me, uh, you ought to write your dissertation on that. And it was a subject he was passionate about. So we began a lot of lunch conversations just talking about it. And it really excited me because, frankly, no one had written a lot about it yeah. before I wrote that book. And so uh, felt like it would make a real contribution to the field and uh, set out to do that over about three years. Yeah. So, again, you wrote the book on it. Uh, for our guys out there um, who maybe they haven't read the book yet, they haven't engaged it, but they're wrestling with the text each week, and they're wrestling with the text for the purpose of proclaiming that message to their people on Sunday. Right. What would be your general overview of, hey, this is how you get at the pathos in the text so that you can communicate that to the people? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that you just got to acknowledge that every text does have an emotive design. Uh, I almost called the book Emotional Exegesis mm. uh, because, you know, Aristotle talked about the logos of the text, uh, and uh, everyone wants to give attention to that, and we should. We, we should think about how a text is built and uh, what the logical progression of the text is. Uh, but he also argued that every text has a pathos. Uh, and that's important because if the spirit inspires the logos, uh, I believe he also inspires the pathos. And the, the task that that creates is uh, exegeting the pathos in order to emulate and elicit that pathos, uh, which is very, very different than just being passionate yeah. in the pulpit, just revving it up, you know, to get people excited. Sometimes the text might not call for that. Sometimes the text does call for it, and yet uh, you might think you're being manipulative if you try to pull that out of people. Uh, but the key is letting the text decide. And so the first thing you got to do is just acknowledge there is a, a spirit-inspired pathos 
in every text. And uh, what I did in the book is uh, really it started in my dissertation and then uh, revised all of it for the book. Was thrilled to have Dr. Jerry Vines uh, partner with me on that. Uh, he has been a preaching hero to me over the years. And uh, actually, the dissertation is how we became really, really good friends. Uh, because he called me one day and he said, hey, I've just read your doctoral dissertation. Wow. Yeah, which is you know a yeah. jarring thing to hear. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, especially from one of your preaching heroes. And he said... You have put words to the music for me. Mm. And uh, we just started talking about how intuitively he had tried to do what I wrote about his entire ministry. So that's where the idea of the book came. And we took my dissertation and he added some pastoral experience to that. But the, the real difference in the book versus the dissertation is I tried to come up with some hermeneutical steps to actually approach the text and discern what the pathos is. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, it is a contribution. I think a lot of folks may find that helpful uh, as they walk through the text. It's not all that different, frankly, from trying to discern the logos of the text. Uh, but still, just having it as a category to mm. think through is really, really important. And uh, it, it'll determine your how well you preach, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, having that awareness that yeah. you need to be uh, attempting to diagnose what that is. I often get this question in my preaching classes and just in general. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll give it to you. I love to ask guys this, guys who are preparing messages every week. What does a week look like for you? Because you have all these other responsibilities. When do you start preparing for the next Sunday? Uh, are you, do you preach through Bible books and uh illustrations do you have a file and all of those you know all of the questions yeah. about sermon prep and how you do it week in week out yeah so i do preach through books of the bible probably 80 percent of the time uh occasionally what i'll do if i'm in a longer book i will follow that with a four-week uh topical exposition so yeah. i'm not preaching through a book but expository sermon through a, a text but not consecutively um and Usually I start looking ahead on Sunday night. Uh, so when I come in after preaching three services on Sunday morning, I have lunch. I usually sit down, fall asleep pretty quickly. Yeah. And when I wake up, my Bible is usually right there by my chair. And I just read the text for the next Sunday, which is the beauty of preaching through a book because mm -hmm. there's no thought into that. It's just what's there. Yeah. I do that. Uh, really devotionally. I'm not taking notes at that point. Uh, when I go in on Monday mornings, I have all my staff meetings and uh, do a lot of administrative things on Monday mornings. But by Monday afternoon, I'm reading the text again, but this time with my notepad and just making observations, asking questions about the text. And it's remarkable after doing it uh, all these years, how an outline starts to emerge. It, it's usually a descriptive outline and, and not an applicational outline at that point. Uh, but usually by the end of the day, Monday, I've got a rough descriptive outline that is going to get me to the outline I take into the pulpit. Uh, Tuesday, uh, I diagram the text, uh, try to do some translation work in the languages, and Again, I'm not looking at any resources at this point. I'm just using the text yeah, to answer the just questions. Just you and the text. Me and the text. Yeah. 
uh, I teach on Wednesday nights, so Wednesdays are devoted to teaching on Wednesday nights. And then on Thursday, when I come back, that's when I really start to try to craft the, the proposition and the applicational points and start putting meat on the bones of the sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, use Logos software, and so that's where all of my resources are. And by the end of the day, Thursday, uh, I, I could probably preach the sermon. Uh, Friday, I spend just digesting it and really trying to get it into my heart as much as my mind, uh, which is key, incidentally, for the whole question of pathos. Yeah. Uh, pathos is as much an exercise of the heart as it is the mind. And so uh, I want to embrace and be changed by the text before I preach it. Saturday, I don't do anything with it until that evening. And I'll, uh, before bed, I'll read through my notes several times. And, uh, you know, back in the old days, I might actually preach the sermon in my office. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. I don't have time to do that, frankly. So, uh, that's what it looks like for me. Yeah. How has your preaching or, or has your preaching changed over the years and how has it changed? Yeah, it's changed a lot. Has it? Uh, yeah. I would say, well, uh, one thing hasn't changed. So when I preached my very first sermon, mm-hmm. I was 17, and my pastor— Is this in Kentucky? This You're is a in Kentucky, Kentucky guy, right? I'm a Kentucky guy. So a wildcat. I'm a wildcat. <laughs> Southern Seminary. All these strikes against me Kentucky here. through and through. Yeah, here, <laughs> uh, yeah so— uh, But my pastor, uh, Randy McFerrin, in Berea, Kentucky, sat me down, and he said, Look, here's what you need to do if you're going to preach— you need to take a text, you need to explain every verse, you need to illustrate every verse, and then you need to apply every verse. Wow. And so in his office, I wrote my first sermon, and he walked me through the text, and it was that archaic, like I, that rigid. I, I'm explaining it, I'm illustrating it, I'm applying it. So I had dozens of illustrations. Yeah. Uh, I still follow that basic footprint today. Now, I don't explain every verse. I'm explaining paragraphs. I'm <laughs> yeah. illustrating paragraphs. Uh, I'm applying the text as a whole. Uh, my preaching is a lot more applicational than it used to be. Uh, and, and by that, I don't mean I'm starting there. I just mean my outlines are applicational mm-hmm. uh, because I'm telling them where I want to take them the entire time instead of at the end. Yeah. I probably was more Puritan in my early days. Uh, just told them at the end, now, now go do this. Yeah. But every text is trying to take you somewhere. And so uh, I, I'm keeping that uh, in front of my people probably throughout the sermon better than I once did. Um, but I think the, the biggest difference in my preaching is that uh, I know I believe what I preach now like I didn't used to know it. Uh, and it's not that I ever doubted the Word. It's just that I was trying to prove that I believed the Word mm. in my young days. Yeah. Well, now I've walked with the Lord and lived so much of the Word that I'm preaching that there's just layers to it that weren't there. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about my son and yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just about to say, go ahead and talk about that. Cause I come into dolphin way, uh, and in your time at dolphin way, 
uh, you you had an experience, man, that I, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. Your son's diagnosed with cancer. You mm. walk uh, through that as a family yeah. and also as a pastor, yeah. pastoring a church. that It's not the easiest church to pastor, uh, right. but you're pastoring that church and and also walking through that how how in the world do you do that you can tell the story of of carson and just how how y'all approach that yeah so back in those days you know i was preaching sunday morning sunday night and wednesday night yeah and uh shortly after we moved to mobile uh about seven months in in fact he was diagnosed with leukemia and he was three two weeks shy of turning four and we just, you know, we're scrambling. How, what do we do? How do we survive this? It was all about him at first. Mm -hmm. You don't think about how it's going to affect your ministry. Uh, but Dr. Faye Roberts, who lives there in Mobile, uh, she had worked with really the leading oncologist for children in the world at St. Jude. And so she knew him. And I never will forget the day he was diagnosed. She was telling me all of our, uh, all of our options and she made this statement. She said, you know, we could treat him here in Mobile and we're almost as good at treating here as they are at St. Jude. Hmm. And that little phrase, almost, yeah. that, that one word really changed it. And I just said, look, we're going to St. Jude. Almost isn't good enough for my son. I did not know at the time that that would mean that every week for three years we would fly to memphis to saint jude and so it changed everything about my ministry there at dolphin way uh I, we were flying out on tuesday morning uh we would get there uh mid-afternoon we would grab a quick bite to eat he would go for lab work that night uh, by wednesday morning all the lab work was back and they would give him chemotherapy and by lunch we were headed back to the airport uh to uh, uh, fly back to mobile but mm. i couldn't get back in time to teach on wednesday night that was the first hiccup yeah and so i had to deal with people's disappointment that i couldn't get there in time to do that and uh, struggling just to put sermons together writing sermons on airplanes and uh, you know one of the god's providential gifts during that time is i spent about 36 consecutive hours with my son mm. every week. Yeah. Und he had my undivided attention for three years. And uh, so that changed my preaching. And uh, I came back after he went into remission. We're flying every week. And I started preaching through the book of Job. And that's, that's probably the first time in my ministry where uh, I just settled in resting in the Lord, total confidence. I'm living what I'm teaching. Mm. And it, th th there was just layers to it that I'd never experienced before. Yeah. And frankly, my preaching has been different ever since, uh, ever since I don't worry about impressing people. I don't need people to think I'm a good preacher. I just want to give them the truth of the text and try to, uh, embody that in a way that moves them to action. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I thought about that very much in my early days. I wanted to be known as a good preacher. Yeah. And that's an idol I think most most preachers have. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. You know, so we all have our preaching heroes. You want to be the next whoever. Mm. Uh, and it's an idol. And God just killed that idol. 
Uh, and it didn't matter to me if I, what size church I pastored or if anybody at SBC knew who I was. Just wanted to be a good dad and I wanted to preach to my people well and uh, serve them well. So that, that, that was a major uh, change for me. I mean, yeah. it, it really killed a lot of unhealthy things in my life. Are you a ministry wife? Do you long for community and encouragement from like-minded women? Do you wish you were more prepared for all that you do? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I'd love to invite you to join Thrive. This is our Ministry Wives Certificate program that prepares women for gospel ministry in their families, churches, and communities. Our eight-week classes can be taken on our New Orleans campus or online. You just choose whatever fits your schedule best. For more information or to apply, visit prepareher.com slash thrive. So how do you, I mean, obviously you're, you feel like you're living the book of Job at that point. Yeah. Um, and I, I said this when I was there, uh, just talking about what you were going through, man, I would have struggled to get up yeah. out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And here's here's the the struggle that we have as pastors, because we're going. I mean, we're experiencing life mm-hmm. just like our people are. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing frustrations and and relationship issues constantly. Yeah, yeah. We have to stand up in the pulpit every Sunday and preach, or Sunday night and Wednesday night. Uh, how in the world are you doing that every week as you're walking through that with your son? Because I know there are guys that are going to be listening to this, and they're struggling, man. They're ready to check out, yeah. and they're standing up on Sunday, and they're thinking, I wonder if I really believe this, yeah. and I wonder if I, if I can keep doing this. So how do you keep showing up every Sunday, opening God's Word, proclaiming God's Word, and trusting God yeah. to keep pastoring and shepherding a group of people so, while you're experiencing life like that? Yeah, so, so one thing I think every preacher believes is that It's not about you, and it doesn't matter how you feel. Mm. We all know that, but we don't really live that. We, we, frankly, we make it a lot about us, and how we feel, it it affects a lot more than we care to admit. Mm -hmm. And so let let me try to answer your question by bringing it back to this discussion of pathos. Uh, So I was preaching in in, uh, 1 John, preaching through 1 John down in Mobile, and... um, uh, got to the passage declaring that God is love, and I'm talking about the love of God, and I've got people who are pinging on me because I'm not there on Wednesday night. Mm. And it hurt me. Yeah, It offended me at a visceral level. Uh, and I've got to decide, okay, am I going to go in the pulpit and use my anger against people? It was a real emotion. Mm. Or am I going to declare the truth of God's love in a way that's consistent with John's tone? And Blake, for me, uh, my confidence in the authority and the power of the word shifted beyond a mere intellectual understanding to, to an experiential reality when I said, you know what, it doesn't matter how I feel because what I feel great about is honoring the Lord when I preach. You know, we really do preach for an audience of one. And so I'm not going to please certain people 
no matter what I do, but I can make sure that I, I please the Lord. And so I, I started, uh, I preached through Job because my experience so aligned with the book of Job, it was very easy for me to emotionally capture the tone of the text. Mm -hmm. uh, where it's tough is uh, when your tone doesn't match the tone of the text. And what I would argue is manipulation is when you force your tone on the text. See, we often get that just uh, just the opposite in our minds. We think, oh, you got to be true to yourself. No, you got to be true to the text. Yeah. You, you can't preach with an emotion that you don't feel. Well, what if the text calls for that? Now, the reality is, if you do that all the time, if you're preaching in a way that is foreign to who you are, well, that's hypocrisy. It's not manipulation. Well, it may be manipulation but it's certainly hypocrisy. You can't live there. But there have been many times where uh, you got folks that are pinging on you and it's like, okay, I'm getting ready to preach here. Yeah. I got to decide who am I serving and who am I honoring and what am I going to do with this text? And in, it's in those moments, if I have to ignore how I really feel to be true to the text, I'm going to do that. And so what I would say to guys is glory in the scripture, uh, draw strength from pleasing the Lord. And it's okay if you don't always feel what you have to convey when you preach, yeah. that's okay. And the only way that's not okay is if it's all about you, but it's not all about you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you need to pull away for a season in order to just recalibrate and recommit yourself to that, then do it. And I had to do that when my son was sick. You know, when he was uh, diagnosed, it was six weeks until he went to remission. I didn't preach those six weeks. So you got to pull away uh, from time to time. But I am not going to let carnal church members rob me of being faithful in the pulpit. And I think a lot of times pastors do that. You know, we, we have our soapboxes, and we it, it's called a bully pulpit for a reason. That doesn't honor the Lord. Yeah. And it doesn't work when you're trying to pastor church either, by the way. Uh, but uh, I can honor the Lord, and I can glory in that in a way that feeds my soul. And so even if my whole church is against me, if I if I'm preaching in the pleasure of Christ, then, and there's strength in that. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's what dying to yourself looks like mm -hmm. as a pastor. So that would be my counsel. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that there are times that, again, you got to pull away. You got to have people speaking into your life, encouraging you, but don't think that, uh, the preaching moment can't be taken captive to the lordship of christ it yeah. can yeah it really can it's that's a good word it really is because what you're talking about is is faithfulness to the text uh when we feel like it when we don't and that the text governs we we're not preaching angry unless god's unleashing his anger yeah and then and you know what i mean then you're preaching angry to represent god's anger but it's not angry at the people necessarily you're representing the text but the call is to be faithful to the text that's right uh and and to subordinate everything within us yeah. including our emotions which preaching is an emotional it, it is. is an emotional experience it is 
And oftentimes I think we can get overwhelmed by our emotion. Yeah. And it's to subordinate our emotion to the text, to be faithful to God's word. And it reminds me of Ezekiel. It reminds me of these prophets mm-hmm. where, I mean, their life is, is miserable and terrible. Yeah. But what God's calling them to do is to proclaim the message right. that he's given to them. Now, he uses their emotion. He uses the experiences. But the call is to be faithful to the word. Well, and that's something else I would encourage pastors to do also. Uh, it's exactly why I chose the book of Job, because it mirrored where I was mm-hmm. living. So it's real easy for me to step into Yeah, you into were embodying that. that message. That's right. You, I, I tell people, you embody or you elicit the tone of the text. And so if you're struggling, uh, choose uh, Jeremiah, mm. choose Job yeah. or Ezekiel or Hosea and stand up there and use your trial in a way that's consistent with the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't make it about your trial. Don't compete with the text, but use your trial in a way that you can emotionally move people because that is not manipulative as long as it mirrors the text. So, so uh, l- l- let me give you a couple of other examples because we're talking about trials, but think about Romans chapter nine, mm-hmm. when Paul says that he wishes that he could be a curse for the sake of his brethren. A lot of people preach that text and talk about the hardness of Israel, and you might make parallels to the hardness of the people that we try to reach, and you almost feel like that people are, uh, you know, spiking the football because people are dying and going to hell. You may exegete that text correctly, but if you preach and celebrate the condemnation of other people, uh, you're not preaching that text accurately as Paul would. Yeah. You ought to preach Romans nine with tears, mm. with a broken heart. Yeah. Uh, and if you can't do that, you don't need to preach Romans nine. Mm. It's not just saying what Paul said. It is eliciting in others what, uh, Paul sought to elicit that that's just so important. And I think yeah. we ignore it. I, I mean, I think we can be so academic in our preaching that we divorce tone from, uh, you know, knowledge. And that's a false dichotomy mm-hmm. uh, that that we we really need to work to overcome, in my view. Yeah. So when I was at Dolphin Way, there were two sermon series of yours that stuck out to people. Obviously, the Job, it was, man, it was it was, it, you were passionate about the, the issue, obviously. You were personally experiencing suffering. And it meant a lot to the people. Yeah. You know, they, they saw you trusting in the Word, continuing to be faithful to the Lord. And that was a powerful picture for them. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is the other sermon series that you preached that was particularly impactful was your series on heaven. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and to I didn't me, even know that. Yeah, to me, that's fascinating. It's it's the the book on suffering, you yeah. know, where you're preaching on suffering and walking with the Lord through suffering, and then heaven. And I think that's a powerful picture for what we do as pastors, right? Because so many people are suffering. That's right. And we're helping them work through that because we have uh, our folks have a terrible theology of suffering. They don't think that they should do it. That's right. Um, the the influence of the health wealth has impacted us. I think more than we even know because yeah. we don't believe we're supposed to suffer. And if we suffer, we believe that we're supposed to be just happy. 
right. just happy through it. And you, I think you gave people freedom and permission that you don't have to just be happy, but be faithful because right? yeah. God's faithful. Be faithful. And then why? Well, because we've got this reward waiting on us right. in heaven. Uh, and, and also, you know, Jeremy Montgomery, we've got Jeremy Montgomery here. Who's our, who's our producer. And then we've got Jeremy Montgomery who served with you and then me and now back with you. Shout yeah. out to Jeremy. Yeah. Um, talking about that as well. The impact, uh, in talking to people who were there, who walked through that time with you yeah. and saw how you processed that, but how you process that, uh, in, in reference to God's word yeah, and stayed faithful. Well, uh, you know, it's encouraging. I didn't even know that that series on heaven was impactful uh, until you said that. But uh, that series was born after probably uh, midway through Carson's treatment. And one of the young uh, patients, young lady, um, she was five and she passed. Mm. And I preached her funeral. Goodness. And the Lord allowed me to lead her mom and dad to Christ. Really? And I preached that sermon to try to pivot to the joy of uh, overcoming the brokenness of a fallen world. So that was on the heels of the Job yeah, it, series? that was after Job. Really? Yeah. 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 So that's another example of just, again, how the highs and the lows, you, you drink deeply from the lows but it helps you to celebrate the highs yeah. a lot better and the bible's full of that mm. you know you don't have to always preach in the valley um but when you preach about the joy of the lord you ought to do so with exuberance and yeah. excitement uh and gratitude for again how god uh, brings healing to a broken world and i just I think sometimes as pastors, we get so locked in on what does the text mean? And I don't want to, I don't want anybody to listen to this and say that, well, Dooley doesn't think it matters what the text means. No, it, it matters a lot. Yeah. But what I'm saying is tone shades meaning. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's lots of examples in the book of just how, uh, what that looks like. I, I talk about uh, Abraham in the book when uh, he offers Isaac and we preach that as Abraham's this great warrior of faith and, and he's on the mountaintop and he's going to offer his son as a sacrifice and you ought to be more like Abraham. Well, that's not Moses' point when he writes Genesis 12 through uh, 22. Uh, Abraham is a failure again and again and again. Oh, Abraham followed God to a land that God would show him in. We need to be more like Abraham. Well, he also took Lot when God said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an heir. He didn't believe that, so he takes Lot with him. Uh, he's lying about his wife because he doesn't believe that God will bless those that bless him and curse those that uh, curse him. Uh, God takes him into the land, and he leaves at the first sign of famine. Uh, he is failing in his faith over and over and over again until chapter 22 and uh the text begins and i'm paraphrasing here but it basically says you know the the word of the lord came to to uh abraham again and it's all you, when you read that emotionally what you're supposed to feel is all right well one more time you got one more chance here yeah, buddy yeah. don't blow it this time uh and it's like th there's this relief and so when i preach that what i want 
people to do is enter into that. I don't want to hold Abraham up as this model of faith and you should aspire to that, but we all know that you can't and you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. What I want to hold him up as is, hey, Abraham's just like us. He gets it, he got, he got it wrong over and over and over again. I bet you get it wrong too. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can't rise and have faith when you need it the most. That's moving. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so when I talk about preaching with pathos, I'm I'm not just saying even that the preacher has to embody uh, a certain emotion. Uh, I'm also saying you need to let your people feel and embrace that emotion themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the text does that. If you just walk through the text, uh, regardless of what emotion you use. Uh, so, there's all kinds of ways to do it, but the bottom line is tone matters. It shades meaning. Yeah. And we, we can't afford to ignore it. Yeah. That's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. All right. So now tell the rest of the story on Carson. How's he doing? So yeah, Carson is uh, turning 16 this summer. He is a picture of health. He's six foot two. Wow. Looking, Dad's looking up at him now. And, <laughs> yeah, you're uh, not six foot two. No, you're, sir, I'm not. <laughs> you're closer to Neither my height. Neither are you, yeah, buddy. You're clo- yeah, for clarity, you're closer to my yeah, height right. than six foot two. That's right. But, you know, my wife and I were driving in uh, to here to New Orleans, and um, the last time the convention was here, he was in the middle of treatment. Wow. And wow. Uh, I, I quit taking preaching opportunities in other places, I quit going to the Southern Baptist Convention, but when it came to New Orleans, I drove over from Mobile one day, and I remember walking around this convention hall just thinking, is my son going to make it? Mm. And all the stuff that goes on here, I just thought it, it was very distasteful to me. I was just like, none of this even matters. Yeah. And now I'm walking around, and he's about to turn 16, and he's a picture of health, and I just think, Thank you, God, for being faithful. Yeah. Thank you just for uh, take loving my son better than I do, and um, lot a lot to celebrate in that alone. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, as someone who followed you, I thank you for your faithfulness to the word. Yeah. I do, man. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm assuming your messages are on your church website for guys that want to go listen to it. And and I don't do this with everybody. Yeah. But certainly. <laughs> Go check out Adam Dooley's messages at Inglewood Baptist. What, what's your website? Uh, Inglewood.church okay. or ebcjackson.org. Either website will get you to us. Uh, and I'm assuming you have messages Yeah, archived. they're all there. Everything's okay. archived. Awesome. Guys, go listen to him. Uh, check out his book, Passion of the Pulpit. What's the, the one on Job and suffering? It's called that's Hope When Life Unravels. Okay, Hope When Life Unravels. Yeah. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, it's thanks for the invitation. Good to talk to you. Good to catch up. Yeah. And, uh, and good, good stuff on preaching. So thank you, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to To Win the Many, a podcast of the Caskey Center at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. The Caskey Center for Church Excellence provides ministerial resources, including undergraduate and graduate scholarships for ministers serving Southern Baptist churches in Alabama, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, and Wyoming. For access to additional resources or more information about our scholarship opportunities, visit our website at caskeycenter.com or nobts.edu.